Welcome to Voices from the Past, a mini-podcast from Plymouth Plantation. We're taking you behind the scenes with the museum's historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters as they prepare to stage the 1623 wedding of Plymouth's governor, William Bradford, to Alice Southworth. Today, I'm speaking with Darius Coombs, director of Wampanoag and Eastern Woodlands Research and Interpretation. Welcome to our podcast, Darius. Thank you, Hillary. This is not the first time that um, Plymouth Plantation has staged the Bradford Wedding. We were just chatting before about the last time that we did the Bradford Wedding. Um, from the Wampanoag perspective, what can you tell us about that experience for you in 2010? Yeah, um, actually that was the first year I played Massasoit. I am Nashville Wampanoag, for real, 24 hours a day, all the time. <laughs> and that was the first time it was an honor for me just playing that man himself, Massasoit, because he was we have much respect for him today, of course, some people in the past. And my wife was actually my wife. It still is my wife today. <laughs> Her name is Elena, and she will be playing my wife this coming Saturday, and I will be playing that side again. But once we um, started planning this event back in uh, 2010, early, also 2009, we were thinking about what it meant for us as Wampanoag people and the surrounding communities amongst Wampanoag culture, you know, mm -hmm. and because um, we know Massoy was invited to this wedding in 1623, we know he brought his wife, and they say wives, but we don't really know how many wives he had, they say five, but that can be misinterpreted also. Mm -hmm. We know that one of his wives came, we know he brought his son, which is very important. Now, which son he brought, probably, guessing might probably be his oldest son, his oldest son was Wormsutter, and that's who the English called Alexander later on. Mm -hmm. And Wormsutter took over leadership after Matt Slade died in 1660. But I guess he brought his oldest son along, and um, he also brought four leaders. Now, Matt Slade was a leader of the Wampanoag community of Poconokit, and going back on what Wampanoag means, Wampanoag is a culture of people, right, mm -hmm. that spread right around what is called Boston today, going all throughout Cape Cod, going out towards central Massachusetts and all throughout parts of Rhode Island, all throughout Cape Cod and the islands out there. And amongst that area, we have over 70 Wampanoag communities. And what we know about Massasoit, he was the leader of one, and that was Poconokin. Mm. And that was 40 miles west of Plymouth. And that's approximately modern-day, sort of the Bristol-Warren, Rhode Island area? What is called Bristol-Warren, Rhode Island, yeah. and today, and that was, like I said, one of 70 communities. And he's, his community was a very large community, we're guessing over three, 4,000 in that community. That's a very rough estimate. But we know his community bordered the Narragansett, which were down in Rhode Island, and those people, the Wampanoag's worst enemy. But, um, so when he came out, did he have leaders from different communities on the way out? Most likely. Um, he might have had his brother, his sub-chief, quite a cleaner. He might have, might have had another leader from Namaskit, a chief from there, which makes sense because if you went back then Plymouth Colony, it was a two-day walk out to Poconokit. And what was common is it was a stay overnight in Namaskit. Mm -hmm. So they were well-versed in the people around that area. So he could have came out and brought the leader of Namaskit, the leader of Manamese, um, Conoco, and also the warriors. So I very much doubt when Massoy came out with all these leaders, that was just Poconokin. 
It definitely, in my opinion, different Wampanoag communities. So representatives from communities all throughout southeastern Massachusetts that were coming to this to this English Most likely wedding. didn't say, but that's all it says in the primary sources. Mm-hmm. The primary sources that Massoit came with four other leaders and six score of men. And what six score of men means is a score is twenty. Mm-hmm. So we need we know he came out with a, over probably hundred and twenty warriors along with these leaders. And these leaders, these warriors were probably from the different communities with the chiefs, with the leaders of the leaders. So if you had a chief, so suppose they picked up a chief in the Masket, which is the middle world today, he might have came out with 30 or 40 of his warriors too, because you've got to protect that leadership, make sure that leadership is safe. Um, when he came out, when they entered into Plymouth Colony, um, they mentioned Massoit gifting Governor Bradford with a three or four deer, and they also gave him a, a, a turkey. Um, like I said, he came out with his wife, and they treated him as high Rosie, which he was. And this year, what makes what's making the Bradford wedding different this year is that we're looking at this event as as a diplomatic relationship between Native people and English people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh. Relate about that relationship. It was part of diplomacy that was going on, definitely in Massachusetts community, Poconoke, mm-hmm. a couple of years prior, before this happened. You know, because Massachusetts had made that treaty with the English in 1621, mm-hmm. um, and what that treaty basically stated was, if you go to war, I'm going to help you out. If I go to war, you help me out. You know, because at the time, we were, what happened before the colonists got here. There was a devastating plague between 1616 and 1618 that wiped out, we're guessing 70-80-90% of our people in a two-year span. What we know about it is the skin turned yellow, open sores, and once you got this, you died within days. Mm-hmm. This is four years before the colonists had arrived. We know the plague started up in northern Maine. We know it went along the coastline, and it wiped out whole communities of people. But it stopped dead in its tracks by Narragansett Bay right before the Narragansett people started. Now you think about it, why would it stop right there? Why not go all the way down through Florida and the Keys? There's a very good guess, what I feel, why it stopped is Wampanoags and Narragansett didn't like each other for at least probably three or four generations before there was any form of European contact here. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like each other, you don't have contact with each other. You're not going to have trade relationships. You're not going to well, you're be... you to see each other. Yeah, you're going you to stay out of each other's to, way. You try to avoid each other. I'm, I'm, I'm sure down there, the leader of the, of the communities down there, one of the leaders, Canonicus, was probably looking up at the Poconokids and other Wampanoag communities and saying, huh, whatever that is, I don't know what it is because I had never ever seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let it take its toll and maybe I'll attack, I don't know. But we know they didn't like each other, like I said, for three or four generations. So Massasoit, we know, felt the pressure coming on from the Narragansett. So when the colonists came out here in 1620, that's when he formed an alliance with the colonists. He saw an opportunity to bolster his strength by allying with the colonists, with these English people. Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't a number factor. There was only, there was only 50 colonists at the time. Sure. It was more or less probably the intimidation factor. Mm-hmm. Narragansett knew the English had the musket. Mm-hmm. And they probably also thought if you make a treaty with one boat coming in, you make a treaty with other boats coming in. And why the colonists in their lines? Well, unfortunately, 
there are trade ships coming over here, not just for trade, mm-hmm. but they were taking slaves. So a lot of these relationships had been ruined already. So you see another ship come in, no matter what, although you're bringing your woman and children, no matter what it is, you're not going to like another ship if you come in if your brother was taken as a slave six years before. Mm-hmm. A very famous ship that came over was led by um, Thomas Hunt. He landed in what is called Plymouth today, what the colonists landed. And this is in 1614. This is two years before the pilgrims got here. And what is called Plymouth today is what we call, it's a Wampanoag community called Patuxet, like I said. And when he came here, he took up to 20 Patuxet Wampanoag people as slaves, went down Cape, landed in what is called East Ham, what we call Nauset, and took seven Nauset as slaves. So you think about that, right? Patuxet and Nauset. Where was the first place colonists landed? Cape Cod, Nauset, and then came into Plymouth. Right. Now, are you going to be open arms to any ship coming in? Definitely not. And no. we know that the first encounter um, from uh, the Brad, from our history of Plymouth, William Bradford writes, and also from the history of Plymouth, uh, from the Mort's Relation, they do describe those early sightings of Native people on the Cape. The first time the Native people run away, which makes complete sense. If they see Europeans coming ashore, they're not yep, going to stick around sure. to find out. The second time, there is there is some exchange of, of fire, of arrows and musket sure, shots. Skirmish broke up down there. Yeah. And, that's... and it, it makes complete sense that this, this community would be would be terrified of these of these Europeans coming ashore, why regardless of who they were. Right. Think about why wouldn't you be? You got to put yourself in their mindset. Absolutely. If your your brother got taken as a slave, if your husband got taken as a slave, you're not going to be open arms to any ship coming in and landing. And Emmanuel Altham, when he writes his two paragraphs describing the governor's wedding, describing at length Massasoit and his wife coming in the procession, also describes um, sort of his own interest in in this boy we don't know who it is as you say it may be um it may be the the prince the the young son of massasoit but he says that he craved a boy of him massasoit for his to bring back to his brother so in the middle of this diplomatic event there is also the there are these overtones of this slavery narrative as well yeah we don't know exactly why he wanted the boy mm-hmm. but we know he wanted one and just that thought way of thought thinking is like thinking as a, that type of person, a person as an object, which is, mm-hmm. you know, not very well thought, you know, as us as Native people. Absolutely. Uh, but this, these, Arthur came on over a little later than the Collins had landed when they, when he came over yes. at Raffer's wedding, mm-hmm. Raffer's wedding as yes. a guest. And he's a, he's an investor in the company. His brother is a member of the nobility. They're financially invested in this, yeah. in this company. And a lot of historians argue that there was a, an interest in, in young Native people for um, to, to train up as diplomats or as ambassadors or that was the idea prior. linguists prior. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, when or curiosities. When came over here, mm-hmm. you, know, um, very, you know, that when Thomas Hunt came over and captured these people from Patuxet, mm-hmm. Wampanoag people, one of those people is Quanto. He's famous today for teaching the colonists how to plant corn in 1621. Uh, you put a herring in in the ground as fertilizer and you plant mm-hmm. your corn seed. Everybody knows that story. But he got taken over to Spain. Some were sold there as slaves. And then he ended up actually over England and lived with a merchant named John Slaney for about four or five years. And he learned how to speak English quite well. Um, he ended up up in Newfoundland as, as a guide. And there was a very um, 
wealthy man over England who's funding a lot of these trips, Fernando Borges, and he was asking around, who's from this area, what is called Plymouth today, Patuxent? And they were saying around, you know, well, Squanto is, but he's not here. He's up in Newfoundland. So they went out and got him. It was Captain Mason up there. Mm -hmm. And they brought him along the coast. And mind you, he was taken in 1614, right? Mm -hmm. He came back as a guide in 1619. And what happened when he was gone? His entire community is gone. His whole community was gone. So when he got what is called back home, what is called Plymouth, he found out numbers people were living. You know, you think, uh, and that's got to change anybody's head, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. there weren't psychologists back then. <laughs> we didn't have Dr. Phil back then, <laughs> anything like that. But you think about you, you look at the very shallow part of it. Like, oh, Squanto, you know, he t taught the English how to plant corn and put a herring in the mound as fertilizer. And then he was considered, he loved having power, because he, he worked a lot on both sides when he went for the first couple of years. He run to the Massoy, um, run to Massoy and said, you better watch out, Governor Bradford plans to attack you guys. And went back to Governor Bradford saying the same thing about Massoy. Mm -hmm. he, he had something very special back then. He knew about both cultures, and he had something very valuable and special. And not many people, any, had both qualities of cultures and uh, knowing of it. And he knew this. And you can say that, okay, he was a selfish person, maybe he was jealous of Massasoit, maybe he was jealous of Governor Bradford, all the power they had. But you've got to look a little deeper into the sky and into his soul and into his head and why he was like that. One, he got taken as a slave, got brought to a foreign country, foreign people, and taught how to speak English, had to live over there under their types of rules for five years. Came back and found out all those people are dead. That's got to change me as a person. I know that that happened to myself. Well, you're so, a man, you're a man without a country. Hey man, what, you just, like, what are you? Mm -hmm. You're like wow. Your whole mindset's your whole head's messed up. So, is it survival? Do you think this relationship between Tisquantum and Massasoit and Bradford that he's doing whatever he can to to survive in his own in, in my his own you mind? Know, in my opinion, you know, he was definitely. He wasn't the same when he came back. Mm -hmm. He was not the same before. When he, before he was taken captive, he was a, I'm sure he was a man, probably a husband, maybe a brother, definitely a brother, a yeah, father possibly, but um, he had his life. He lived through his 13 moon cycle, and when he got back, the whole, his whole, well, when he got taken, his whole life was changed, but it was more drastic when he got back here. Um, so he, he tried to work on both sides, and Massoy finally figured out the game he was caught and then because of the relationship they already made, the treaty was between the two sides, he was kind of messing everything up. So mm -hmm. Massoy demanded his, his, actually his hands. He sent his knife out personally and wanted his hands while the trouble was causing. Mm -hmm. Governor Bradford would not, would not give him up, though. He was, he was considered to be too valuable to them in 1621. So that's a real threat to this early diplomatic relationship is. that is. Bradford is, is undermining Massoy. Probably one of the first breaks of the treaty, you know, you mm -hmm. think about it. He would not turn, turn that person over. Mm -hmm. And the treaty states, although I think the treaty states in only in English, but it kind of work, it should work both sides. If one's doing something wrong on one side, you turn that person over to the people. Mm -hmm. And Massoy demanded it would be turned over, but he would not. Governor Bradford basically said he's too valuable of a person for us. He's our tongue. He's our interpreter. Mm -hmm. He shows us where to go and where not to go. You know. And so he would not turn him over. And the thing about Squanto, he didn't last too much longer. You know, not because of. Massoy put a bounty on his head, which he did, 
but he, back in 1622, he led a couple English, I want to say Hopkins, Stephen Hopkins, but I'm not sure, down to what is Monomoyak, you know, as a trade relationship with the people down there, what is called Chatham today on Cape Cod. And that evening, they mentioned Squanto as having a nosebleed that wouldn't stop. And it's something what they called Indian fever back then, but we know he died in 1622, uh, died that evening. So this relationship, there's really a period of radio silence between these two communities, between Poconoket and Plymouth, and or between Massasoit and Plymouth, that there, there's a tense relationship after after the episode with Tisquantum. Well, Squanto, he... He's, he's portrayed, he's written quite a lot about in the books today, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was a man who's, more, in my opinion, more important than he was for both sides, and that was Hoppenmach. Mm -hmm. Hoppenmach was stationed out here in the summer of 1621 to actually live right in, I think, in the fields of Stephen Hopkins and another English gentleman, right near the village. And what his job was is to act like a guide, interpreter, um, translator for the, for the English, because a lot of people don't realize Massoy's community was 40 miles west of here. Right, as you said, it's two days' walk. Miles, it's a two days' walk. That's, yeah, that's and, an hour to drive today. And, and the reason, to go back, the reason why the English colonists wanted to have a treaty with the Wampanoag community was because there was tense relationship with other communities. Mm -hmm. How you really felt toward the colonists being here, you really have to go, in my opinion, from person to person around Massachusetts. And I say this because it depended on how, what kind of trade relationship you had with the traders prior. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had some ships came over, had good trade relationships, good business. Some had alternative motives, do trade and take some slaves. And if your brother's taking another slave, your husband's taking another slave, you're not going to like, like say, any ship coming over. So they needed that alliance also with us, with Pocono. And everybody knew about this guy, Hobbamak, being sent out here, you know. They knew how much power he had. Not just spiritual power, but physical power. He's described as a panisse. Yeah, a panisse is one of the leaders, the chiefs, right-hand man, pretty much. He's considered to be a spiritual leader, considered to be one who leads on a battle, one who counsels on war. He knew how to speak English. Massey would not have sent him out here if he could not speak English. It wouldn't make any sense. Right. You know, where he learned, we don't know. We don't. We have no idea. He could have been captive and brought over and brought back over. And that was the idea a lot of the time, to bring Native people over to the England and bring back over as guides and interpreters. And that's possible for him. We don't know for that for sure. But we do know he lived out here for about 20 years of his life mm -hmm. doing that job. There was one incident in which he was leading Governor Bradford through the woods, and they came upon five other Native people that didn't care for English a whole lot. But they saw who this guy was with, Hoppenmock, and they all scattered. And it just gives you an idea how much power this guy had, physical power and spiritual power. And a panisse is raised from child up, you know. Even today in our communities, you see special qualities in a person. And from then on, that child is taken in and raised for a certain purpose. And you see uh, medicine people still today and back then see these qualities in the child. And to raise baby as a panisse in which Hobbamak was. So looking at all of these very important people who were part of this this wedding in 1623, we have all of these important, we, have, we know Hobbamak is most likely there yeah, considering yeah. his position in the community. We know Massasoit's there. He brings his wife who is 
an important person as well in this community. Um, the English don't pay much attention to her, but from an English perspective, the power lies with men. But from Wampanoag perspective, power lies with women. So what role would Massasoit's wife have, have played in this diplomatic relationship that's, that's playing out at this well, wedding? Yeah, women are, are highly respected in our community still today. You have to respect anything that gives life, gives life a woman gives life. You think of um, medicine people, right? And that's something what we call powwows back then. And powwow that we think today is a big social gathering, but powwows were considered to be medicine people. Most of, most of the medicine people were women back then. In our community still today, we have medicine men and medicine women, but in my community, which is very strong in Mashpee, um, we have a lot of strength in the women down there, spiritual leaders still today, 2015. But Massoit's wife, yeah, she had say. She ran, she pretty much ran everything, probably what happened in the house, you know. There's a description of the same that was his main wife and other ways for tongue twister, but um, we don't know because you you got to look at these primary sources, and that's one thing we look at here at Plymouth Plantation and what they really meant for Wampanoag or any Native perspective. You know, like when the English walked into our houses, right? They would write down, okay, huh, this man has six wives, two kids, maybe that's it, because what they're doing is comparing their culture against our culture, and how European culture is is inside of a household is husband, wife, kids, on the most part. And how our culture is, is three or four, possibly five generations of one, house, one household. Mm -hmm. So what they could be looking at when they walk into our houses is sisters, aunts, grandparents, not realizing that, you know. And household structures in Wampanoag community, and a lot of Eastern Woodland peoples, is matrilineal. So houses are, yeah, are passed the through the woman's line, through the woman's mother's line. line. Yeah, the woman likes to have much say in our community. Like most of the uh, medicine people are probably considered to be the woman. We have um, still today in our structure is clan mothers, which are highly respected women, sometimes elder women, and clans function in different ways in the community. But if normally leadership, when it became a uh, sachem or a chief, was passed down from father to son. Although the son was capable enough from the government, you pass it down to your daughter. But if you're a, a male chief and you're doing the wrong thing and these clan mothers saw that, they could take you out of power. They can still do that today. Take the leaders out of power and put somebody else in. So what sort of a political role, obviously we have to, we have to hypothesize a little bit because Altham doesn't describe very much in this brief episode of, of Bradford's Wedding, but... What, do you, what would you hypothesize would be um, Massasoit's wife's role in this diplomatic encounter? Would she be part of the negotiations? Would she be there as sort of a symbol? We're bringing our wife and children into your community. We, there's, is that a display of trust? How do you interpret that? Yeah, I that? definitely would say it's a, it's a display of, of trust, but, and also, but maybe not from other, other communities either. You know, you got the father leaders. He, he brought 120 warriors, but it's like that today. If you're President of the United States, who do you have with you? Your Secret Service, right? Mm -hmm. You have your protection. You gotta protect your leadership, no matter where you go. Um, so you got five, possibly six high people of high hierarchy, you know? Mm -hmm. So you, you don't just go in there, walk in there as chiefs without any form of protection. 
if some of these leaders might have been the first time them coming into doing the colony. And we talk a lot about, um, as interpreters in the 17th century English village, what the experience of of seeing Massasoit's procession coming into town would have been like for English people. I'm curious, from from a Wampanoag perspective, what would that processional experience coming into an English community, what do you think that would have been like for some of these men who may have never come into Plymouth before, may have never seen an, an English community before? What do you? I'm sure they got briefed. Mm-hmm. I'm sure because Massasoit was here a couple times before already. Sure. Not a few times. So I'm sure Massasoit told his men, told the other leaders what to expect, you know. Uh, we're not sure, like I said, who the other leaders were or if they ever came to Plymouth before in the two years prior. But we know Massasoit was here. And sure, they didn't understand the culture because how could you if you've never been into the culture before? Sure, so, lots of things looked very, very strange. and I'm sure it looked very different on both sides, you know. Absolutely. No question. Like when, like when Massoy comes in, he's dressed like the other guys. He has breech cloth. They mentioned he has a, um, a belt in which we have to process and make one of those belts mm-hmm. now in the process as I speak today, getting ready for Massoy's wedding, a wampum belt. We know he's wearing uh, a black wool, and black wools were meant for people of high stature, like for chiefs, and they were extremely rare back in the 17th century. If a common person went out and captured a black wolf, he would not keep it for himself. He would skin him, tan him, then give it to a, a chief or a person of high, high, uh, higher than what he was in, in the community. And so we know he had that on. We know his wife was most likely, they don't describe what she has on, but we know she's draped primarily in wampum and possibly also having a wolf, you know, but definitely a high respect, you know. And we have, we've talked a lot about in this podcast the problem of, of what we call single source syndrome, that we have one source that describes this encounter, one English source. And do we have any, in Wampanoag uh, oral histories or, or written histories, do we have any accounts of the Bradford wedding from the Wampanoag perspective? Nope. I haven't heard of any accounts. I just heard of that one short paragraph that which we try to break down and analyze to the best of our ability here. What's the biggest challenge from entering a source from a Wampanoag perspective, knowing it's a European source? What's the, what's the biggest challenge that you find? It's like, it's like any source. It's jumping into it and breaking it down from a Wampanoag perspective, what it means to us. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we do here at the museum. You know, because you're talking about two different cultures of people. Languages are different, cultures are different, different, different ways of doing things, you know. Um, so that's, that's interesting for us. Like, what did he mean when he wanted one of Massoid's little boys. What does that really mean? Um, what does it mean when you say you came with four leaders? Who are these leaders and why were they here with, with Massoid? Why did you choose these four? Or did these four leaders just say, I'm volunteering, well, I want to go to Bradford's wedding, go to Bradford's wedding? Mm-hmm. Things like that. We, we're, we're all curious about, but there's a lot of what-ifs, you know? Are there any, when, when you read sources like Altham's letter from 1623 or, or other European sources, do you find, as a, a Wampanoag person today and uh, a, a historian here at the museum, do you find that there are a lot of cultural misconceptions that because there is a sort of a cultural miscommunication that certain Wampanoag histories or certain Wampanoag actions are misinterpreted through European sources and become part of the, part of the bigger narrative of the history of Massachusetts? It's like, um, for here at the museum, we have a lot of employees, right? 
and there's always employees coming and going. I've been doing this for quite a while, for up to 30 years so far, and it's always retraining. It's always retraining because we, we might have people here, veterans might be here 15, 20 years, and when they leave, they, they're leaving with their knowledge. And so it's, it's my job to make sure, part of my job to make sure the focus is always there. The, the history is always there. And that's what we do here at the museum. We try to be as accurate as possible of putting across the information as truthful as possible too. Like we here at the museum, we can talk about slavery, colonization, all that, but it's all how you put it out there, you know? Because you come down, come down to the Wampanoag home site, we are in the present day, we will be role-playing a little bit in scenarios soon, but our site's a little different from colonial site. Like up there, they play in character. I say play, because that's what they do, they're acting. They're not 17th century English They're people. Not 17th century. Whereas your staff are Wampanoag or other member of other Native thing. communities. We're a cultural um, site here. Mm -hmm. We're a cultural program, and that's one thing we don't shut off at five. And I said this before: we don't turn on at nine. Sure, we wear different clothing than what we are on the site, 17th century clothing, but we're very heavily strong. Um, we're involved in our communities, you know. And that's one thing for our, the Wampanoag home site, I think it's very important for the guests to come down. Because when they come down into our site, sure, we have a 17th century themed site, but what the guests want to know about is not just what happened back in the 17th century, but they want to know what's going on today amongst Native people. And I think it's, it's a big plus for us being out of character because we can talk about when the next powwow is going to be. We can talk about our language project going on today. And that's what people are really interested in. Sure, they, we can expand through the centuries with no problem. Do you find that a lot of visitors are surprised that the Wampanoag people are still an active part of the of the community, that they that the people still exist? A lot of people are surprised that people are still living who are indigenous east of the Mississippi River. I think a lot of Americans, they think of Native people, they think of Western people, they think of very stereotypical images of Native people. They think of, oh yeah, planes, buffalo, riding horseback. Uh, that's mainly because what they, that's what they portrayed on TV. Sure. You know? Absolutely. And the planes and all that. And that's what they're portraying on TV is the, the time period, mainly the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And we've been a culture here for a long, long time. We're still here. Like, like for number-wise, for one of our people, we probably numbered at one time. It's a guess, rough guessment, but over 100,000, you know? And today... We, we are still we have still have strong communities, but today the number is about seven thousand. Um, so when you come down to the Wampanoag home site, a lot of our staff are Wampanoag, but we also have other indigenous nations across the Americas who represent Wampanoag people. Because where you're at is Wampanoag country. Where you're standing when you come here is Wampanoag country, and that's I think that's very important. It holds a lot of weight, and we are the product that still deliver that message. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk just briefly about weddings uh, and marriages in, in Wampanoag culture. We're presenting an English wedding. Um, we're presenting an English separatist wedding, which was a civil affair rather than a religious affair. Can you talk about weddings uh, in Wampanoag culture, maybe how they would have looked like? Were they, were they religious or were they civil? It, it, it's, a, it's, not, it's, like, it's not religion as we think. It's, it's 
we have our ways of thinking as spiritual beliefs, and we still have our spiritual beliefs today. We have ceremonies for uh, weddings, which are like people's weddings around the world, you know? <laughs> Wedding, you invite your guests, you invite your family. It's a very happy occasion. We take it quite heavily, you know? When you're picking um, a coding, as you say, you're picking a spouse, normally that would be your spouse for the rest of your life, you know? Um, for me, that's that was very important. You know, I, I married I married a Wampanoag, actually Wampanoag woman, which is one is tough today. Mm-hmm. The reason I say it's tough for us as a community is only maybe twenty four hundred people in our community, and to find somebody who's not related to you and you fall in love with, is quite difficult. Sure. <laughs> you know, but our my we have a traditional wedding which we had over three hundred guests at our wedding, and we had our medicine man do our ceremony. People speak about you. There's a whole ceremony done, like the ceremonies done today. And the cer- the continuity of those ceremonies go back through the generations to the communities that would have interacted with the pilgrims here today. We try to keep going as much as we keep keep going on today. We don't have all that we want, and there's reasons for that. One biggest thing is like the disease that swept through here. Mm-hmm. Can you just imagine before how this place looked before 1616? Can you imagine 70 strong, thriving Wampanoag communities, ranging from 1,000, 3,000, say, which are the cultural strong, you have cultural leaders, you have political leaders. I can just imagine, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't even fathom that myself, you know. And that's one thing I would really love to do is go back and hop on a machine, go back in time mm-hmm. to that point and see how the structure is really set up. We, we try to, and then like when that plague hit, there's probably medicine people doing ceremony for not even sure what they're doing ceremony for because mm-hmm. we've never seen anything like that before. Right. So you think about the stuff we had lost. Um, and unfortunately, those laws are made later on that we couldn't have our ceremonies. And we, so we try to keep going as much as we can keep going today and try to keep tack as much as we can keep intact. Well, thank you very much, Darius, for speaking with us. To learn more about the 1623 Bradford wedding that's coming up Saturday, August 15th, you can always visit us online at www.plymouth.org. Thanks for listening.